Welcome to the Human Odyssey, the podcast about human-centered design. The way humans learn, behave, and perform is a science, and having a better understanding of this can help improve your business, your work, and your life. This program is presented by Sophic Synergistics, the experts in human-centered design. So, let's get started on today's Human Odyssey. Hello, and welcome to the Human Odyssey podcast. My name is Raquel Garcia. I'm a human factor specialist here at Sophic Synergistics. I'm going to be the moderator for today's episode where we're going to discuss telemedicine and the role that human-centered design plays in its successful implementation and acceptance. I'm here with Dr. Jennifer Fogarty, our Director of Applied Health and Performance here at Sophic. Good morning. Pleasure to be here. Excited to talk about the topic. As well as Ms. Cynthia Rando, our CEO and founder. Hi, good morning. I'm actually really excited about this topic and in the increased scope of telemedicine. And Ms. Brittany Walton, our strategic operations lead. Hey guys, morning. Happy to be here. I wanted to start off by giving a description of telemedicine. So telemedicine, it allows healthcare professionals to evaluate, diagnose, and treat patients at a distance using technology such as video or through a phone, and even with a separate piece of technology such as a wearable. And so the successful role of human-centered design being implemented is really going to speak to the acceptance of it and just how people are using it, the value that they're receiving from it. And with that, is there anything else we can speak on? Yeah, I guess just right off the bat to give an example. So, you know, when this topic came up, I was trying to think of, you know, any experience that I had with it. And so a year ago, um, I my experience with telemedicine, um, I had a pretty minor, um, infection, you know, pretty standard. I just needed antibiotics and we're actually, it was, I think a Thursday and we were leaving on a trip, um, on that Friday. And so I didn't have time to make an appointment, go somewhere, but I really wanted to get meds before we left so that, you know, I wasn't having to deal with this on the trip. And so I just Googled telemedicine and I forget what, um, platform it was, but something came up and I, you know, downloaded it, went through their process and, about a couple hours later, I had um, a prescription that went to my pharmacy. And at first I was like, this is too good to be true. So I called the pharmacy and um, sure enough, they, they had a prescription for me and I picked it up and it was, it was a really good experience actually. So, I think so did you it, have it, to it talk be... to a healthcare provider before that? No, all? no. Yeah. In hindsight, there were a couple of things that I was like, well, maybe they should have done that differently, but I didn't have any face-to-face with a doctor. No. Or PA. Yeah, there's yeah. a lot of different models. My comment was going to be that the phrase telemedicine is is a big umbrella. Um, there's a lot and you can break it down into a lot of different sectors to even like Brittany, what I think you're describing, um, which is probably the most distant version, right? Where you're filling out maybe a questionnaire, giving them some personal data, of the current yeah. situation and someone in the background, including artificial intelligence <laughs> being a thing. It is processing that, triaging it, and coming up with the, the high probability that indeed you were correct. You know, you you had something that needed a medication, and they could call it in. But a doctor is in the loop somewhere because a prescription got written. Um, but without that face to face contact, you're like, okay, what 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 is happening in the background? And if you're comfortable with that, that's good. A lot of people still um, would want more personal interaction, even if it were virtual. But then even the idea of having technology deployed 
and that technology sending information back um, to to a central place where it's being processed by you know algorithms, but a human is in the loop to make an ultimate decision. What happens is telemedicine. So, so it's a pretty umbrella, a, a large umbrella topic, and we could probably talk about different components. I think with COVID what made a, a significant change and probably allowed you to have that experience and, and that, um, you know, how rapidly they were able to turn around a result and something actionable for you was the fact that telemedicine is now in, in terms of the way you experienced it and, and the virtual doctor or physician's assistant nurse interaction with patients is now reimbursable and reimbursable very much aligned the lines of an in-office visit. And until that occurred, um, and that was rapidly turned around due to COVID. That right. was one of the biggest obstacles from more traditional physicians and hospitals and healthcare facilities incorporating it as an option. Like before, it wasn't even a, an option. Right? Yeah, it was yeah. very hard to find. So I, I think it's a really good example, but we could definitely take different rabbit trails. Yeah. And, you know, I think the the application is going to be all over the board because you have different types of users and different types of levels of want to use to, you know, there's, there's people who are, are highly in tune with themselves that want the opportunity to be able to guide and for lack of a better word, control their healthcare a little bit more um, predominantly versus relying on a doctor who, who may or may not spend five or 10 minutes with you diagnosing. And as we all know, lots of things present with similar symptoms. And so sometimes the time spent with you isn't enough to really deconflict what actual symptoms you have to make a proper diagnosis. I mean, we see it time and time again, you know, even people who go in to visit with the doctors one-on-one, you know, get, diagnosed incorrectly and then have to go back for one or more more things or even worse they end up in the hospital because they were misdiagnosed and again there's lots of different variables you would have to deconflict but i think it presents a great opportunity for taking taking control of yourself and the risk presented to yourself now again it it as jen was pointing out telemedicine also opens the door for other risks depending on how how you're seen or not seen or prescribed because we we live in a very um prescription centric magic pill culture. So again, I think there's, there's lots of different ways we could approach this conversation and and the types of users are one of them, but also the, the types of solutions we offer to deal with the risks are the other side of this coin, I think, to be, to be a little bit more concrete. Yeah. And I think there's still not a lot of clarity about, and I'm not, I'm not advocating necessarily for a lot of regulations, so I don't want this to be <laughs> misinterpreted, but there's probably a high degree of variability about what's going on and how telemedicine is contributing to the practice of medicine and the quality of information that the patient is getting back. Um, I would say I just, some of the stuff is a little black box. So I, I think Brittany's experience is so interesting to me because there was lack of a of an apparent human in the loop. It's not that there wasn't, it just wasn't obvious, you know, through what yeah. you experienced. I, I think clearly there had to be, but how much, how much that individual played, um, you know, in really digging into what you, how you responded, what you wrote versus an algorithm resulting in a probability that was highly likely that you you did have what you thought you have. But, you know, like this was, you know, in this case, it was a, a very streamlined event and, and it was 
of like characteristics so that it probably followed a pretty um, predictable route. So whoever was on the other end taking, well, because this is like a liability issue, and that's why I don't want to get into too much regulatory. But the person had to be pretty sure that one, you were being accurate in what you were reporting. They were receiving dependable information and could make that decision and use their physician's license to write that prescription. I mean, it seems pretty innocuous, but I think what what Cynthia was pulling on was true. So even under the best of circumstances, because presentations, symptoms, reporting of symptoms can be highly variable and and it's called a differential for a reason, right? You have to work through a process that says when someone presents with a a series of symptoms and it could be one or more things, now you have to start doing things to determine what is what is the more appropriate outcome that we want to treat. But it's a it's called, we always say like it's called the practice of medicine for a reason. Like it's a process. Um, but I think telemedicine has really offered an avenue, one for the patient um, to engage in, in a more deliberate manner. Um, I don't know that you get feedback. I'm still a little like on the fence of, do you get enough feedback through the telemedicine route to feel like you're actually controlling things better? Because I don't know how much, it depends, I guess, on which fashion it's engaged and how much information comes back to the individual to make a different decision. But you definitely have flexibility, you know, when you think about managing your care, because I think your access to is unlimited at that point, like even geographically, you know, when you want to see uh, get a second opinion. You know, it's not about driving four hours away. It's about scheduling a different virtual engagement. So maybe that's where the flexibility and the accessibility, and as we can get into like healthcare equity, that um, potentially it, it's going to really allow accessibility um, to, to engage in things that maybe you didn't if you had to physically travel to a place. So I, I, I definitely think that's a really been a huge benefit of it. Yeah, I think. Oh, sorry. (laughs) Sorry. I was just going to say, in in general, we've seen a huge backlog of appointments, too, for the traditional healthcare route since, you know, some COVID restrictions have been lifted. And, you know, case in point, I had to get dental surgery that, you know, my last go around pre-COVID, like I was able to schedule almost immediately. And this time around, it took me four months to get an appointment. And I mean, for, you know, again, this is scheduling of an actual thing that we need to do in person, but I still had to go through another like window to go see that provider one time before that surgery. So three to four months to get to that appointment and then another month to get to the actual surgery where now I'm five months out. And when we think about people who are in critical need who didn't get seen for things like, you know breast cancer or in, and stuff like that, time is of the essence. And so I think with telemedicine, like the, the ability to rapidly see people to try to facilitate more appointments, you know, I think there's potential there, but it's a dance. Yeah. And I think from the human perspective, one, you know, really important aspect of telemedicine too, that I didn't experience, um, is the follow-up, you know, so ask, going back to the patient and asking, you know, did the prescription or the, you know, whatever it was end up treating, you know, the symptoms, are there any lingering symptoms? Like, how are you feeling now? And that's, that's another thing that um, I didn't experience um, with my own experience, but uh, it's definitely an important piece that we need to make sure is, is there. Yeah. And, and starting a poll on the human centered design, I think there's an area where you, um, there's certain classifications. So what Cynthia is talking about, and I think where you're, I would classify 
like Brittany, your need and your experience were, were, were relatively aligned. Like I agree with you, like there might've been a benefit to the follow-up, which is why I'm, I'm a little concerned. Like there's not a lot of data out there that this, what Cynthia was describing the backlog, you know, people neither, either not getting appointments or avoiding going to hospitals because of the pandemic. There's been a lot of care that's not been provided for two years. And the consequences of that are catching up now. And you're seeing it in the medical system, which is causing a whole nother backlog. <laughs> because, you know, again, you, the hospital systems in general, like if you've experienced an emergency room, the concept of prioritization should occur. When you come in either via the ambulance bay or driven in or walk in, someone is supposed to be assessing your problem to say, we don't just take you in the order in which you arrive necessarily because you may need help sooner than others. Like who can wait? So that that triaging process is happening in standard medical care now if if they're designed t- to do that. So I think in your case, you're, it was like this low level, relatively, um, you know, low risk area, given your symptoms and your ability to articulate yourself. And however you interacted with this platform that turned around um, an action that allowed you to ha- get what you needed. And then you had an okay outcome, which didn't drive you to seek follow-up. Not that a follow-up maybe wouldn't have been good to close the loop from a whole data, like a whole picture of treating yeah. a patient, which might be a smart thing to do because then that would say if you didn't get the result you expected, like relief from whatever you were experiencing, again, like maybe your meds needed to be changed or maybe it wasn't a bacterial infection. It could have been viral, which means antibiotics wouldn't work and kind of did it just take its course or did you need more treatment, you know, in a different area and also to decide who actually needs to come in person. Um, you know, and that's where you can save yourself a lot of grief and time by having stuff triaged up front remotely using telemedicine tools. And then as the data is gathered, decisions have to be made. And again, a human will always have to be in the loop. Um, artificial intelligence and machine, machine learning can help, but there are also things that have to be de- um, designed and trained. And there's a lot of data out there that if you train it, with a very small subset of data, it, it will be biased. Like it will not have the full breadth and depth of all the stuff that could go on. So a lot of work has to go into these tools if they're software-driven outcome inf- information drivers. To, to it, But a human still has to be a decider. So I think it's interesting that we have these options. I just don't think um, systematically it's being done in a way where the linkages between the the low level, low risk experience you had is, is being acknowledged versus the breast cancer example, which is a woman finds a lump at this point, physically would have to go for mammography and maybe follow up imaging. Um, that could almost be done, you know, the, the actual provider somewhere else, of course, you're interacting with radiation specialists and technicians and mammography technicians, but you know, information could be moving to an expert provider somewhere else where you don't have to go. In our case, you know, we're we're in Houston, you're in Huntsville, but it's like, well, if I can't get to the medical center, I could go to a local place to get the image done. That image can be sent to the specialist at MD Anderson to be read and to be decided, but I could start to get some information and have interactions with physicians from my home until the the decision is made. I have to go to a place to get treatment that can only be delivered in person. And, and it may just be that follow-up that says, now we need hands-on assessment of what's wrong with you. I mean, we've all had that frustrating experience of your first visit 
to a doctor to get an issue addressed is talking. And then they start data gathering via imaging. And then you go back to see the results of the image and you're like this do loop. And, and it is a lot of delay. Whereas triaging the issues, getting people via virtual discussions to the right location to get the right data collected, which could be imaging or blood draws or otherwise. And then after that data is collected, now it's important to see the person in in person, the physician in person, and have them do a hands-on physical while they've got data to work with and can move a little bit more expeditiously through the process. I think that's systematically health systems could take telemedicine there. But right now it's like it it got it got accelerated in place and it's really great and people have benefited from it, but it's like we can't stop there. It it hasn't it hasn't fulfilled the real need yet, but it, but it definitely has shown people proof of concept that it functions well. I think people were comfortable with the idea of it being temporary, right? Because what this is also pushing on is a very uncomfortable thing for people and that's change. And so you've got a very institutionalized, established approach to medical care where, you know, doctors historically are, are viewed as the only ones who can, you know, diagnose successfully. And I, I think that although I understand and agree with that, you know, from a medical degree and all of that experience, I don't contest that. I also don't think people are completely stupid and worthless data providers either. And so I think there's there's got to be a happy medium where we accept what the person is bringing to the table from a self-assessment perspective, especially if they've got past experience with certain aspects of symptoms or things. I don't think that they should have to go through the rigmarole that you know, Jen was alluding to, like, if, if it's very consistent with something you've dealt with in the past, or it aligns with something you have experience with, because the, the other truth of this is that sometimes when we're diagnosed with something, we actually become more expert than a generalist provider is on that topic. And you, you can actually, now that, you know, data is very accessible to people, you can actually very astutely, if you get the right sources, you know, become informed. People are not just generically dumb. And I think we have to stop treating people as such. Instead, I think we have to provide the right data to help people empower the doctors. Like, I think it's a mentality shift. Well, it's also how you train physician shift. So, you know, there, there are physicians out there, you can find that work with their patients really well, you know, and you feel respected and you feel like your, your voice is being heard and the information you're providing is being valued. Um, and we should all, <laughs> I say this, like, we should all seek them out. I do, but, but it's work, you know, and, and there's many, many times I've interviewed doctors and decided that that's not the one for me, you know, or my family member or whomever. Um, but that's, that's, <laughs> that, that constrains the number that takes up your time that takes up, you know, you're going many different places. Um, so there's an element of that, like this is outside of telemedicine per se, it's the bigger picture of that's typically not how medical student training has gone for decades. There was a shift a couple of years ago um, with some of the teaching curriculum and methodology. I will say that that is really impressive, um, but we're not going to see the impact of that broadly for a while. You, you know, people stay in their professions for a long period of time. <laughs> and, you know, I think there's different personalities in there, but, but as a patient, I think you take that on as well. Um, you know, it, it's okay. 
but I say this, but how many choices do some people have? You know, insurance is a constraining factor with, you know, who you can afford to go to versus, you know, paying higher rates or paying out of pocket won't be covered. Geographically, how do you get places? So telemedicine definitely opens up, again, accessibility. Um, but there are other pieces that aren't addressed yet um, about how you get to get to physicians that maybe are more like that in terms of wanting to create a team that includes the patient as as part of the care model, not just other experts and, and healthcare support staff. Um, so there, there's a lot of opportunity there, but I think that's also a policy issue. That's a cultural issue with how medicine is done. So hopefully those things come along now that telemedicine has opened up the opportunity to reach people maybe you couldn't have gotten to before. I think that's actually where human-centered design has a lot of value to give to the system, right, and helping quantify the risk from from the human quotient, right, and helping all the players more seamlessly integrate because I don't think what we're saying is it's one or the other. It's all pieces of it depending on, you know, time and problem um, and permutation of, of expert needed. So, you know, I, I, I think it, again, it's a complicated equation of things and I don't think it's something that happens overnight, but it would be nice to start seeing a shift in philosophy about how we look at this versus villainizing like the poor patient when they want to have an active conversation or disagreement with a healthcare provider. And, you know, I have a really good example from when I was about 20 years old. I contracted uh, chickenpox at 20 years old, which is highly abnormal. You know, it's something you don't don't really see, and got sent to the ER with it. And you could clearly see I had chickenpox all over my body. But the healthcare provider, because it did not match the normal state of events for chickenpox or um, uh, uh, presentation of symptoms, he said, "Well, what makes you think you have chickenpox?" And I said, "Are you looking at me?" And like, it was the most eye-opening experience I ever had. I, I felt like the healthcare provider wasn't even looking at me as a specific data point. They were only looking at a, you know, a book version of me that didn't coincide. And so that's where I learned real fast. There was just, there was something wrong <laughs> in how our providers are, are practicing medicine in, in some respects. And this is not everybody, um, but it was just an eye-opening example. Yeah, so the other more prominent move in medicine is also precision and personalized medicine. So that there is recognition that the, you know, we forever, you know, how we do things now is really epidemiological driven, which refers back to your point of, you know, when you look at the, when somebody does analysis on diseases and you saw this throughout the pandemic, a lot of what was being pointed to was epidemiology, like of, of the people that got tracked of the data they generated, then they go in and they do math on those cases and they come up with averages and they come up with deviations and they talk about what's most likely and who's at most at risk because most people who were presenting in the hospital, you know, had these characteristics, which could have been these comorbidities. In your case, the example is most people who present with chickenpox, and it's it's not super common to go to the emergency room chickenpox unless it's driven by the high fever, right? Like who who normally that's you know like just living through it and dealing with the fever before the vaccine was available, you know, or if your fever got high enough, that's when they're rushing kids to an emergency room and you run the risk of you know a febrile seizure, but. Yeah. So you're right. I mean, people, you don't fit epidemiology. Well, guess what? No, almost nobody sits on that average line. That was, 
that's kind of the problem. It just gets you into a ballpark, but you're right. You have to look at the person. So any technology telemedicine used needs to be designed and understand that the individual will present with characteristics. How do you measure them? And how do you do it in the least risky and pain, you know, way, which includes causing pain and being evasive. Um, but, but I think the idea is with telemedicine and using tools to gather data remotely, you can learn and characterize the individual. And so they're moving toward, I'm hoping, and I'm part of, you know, different science groups that are pushing this thing called deep phenotyping. And so the, we have to still learn a lot about what characteristics, and this will depend on the situation, but of all the biomarkers you can measure, and, and that's another big broad term, it could be, you know, let's say video, using video to look at the person. And if you get really high quality, like high def signal, you can see a lot about someone's skin tone, you know, like you're saying eruptions on the skin to know, you know, what kind of lesions those are, you know, for dermatology issues or viral issues. A lot can be done with video. A lot can be done with audio, you know, and auscultation. Like you're used to a stethoscope touching your chest and hearing your heart. You can actually do it with um, an adapter to an iPhone microphone and, and other smartphones. Like it's called, you know, digital auscultation. And then the the algorithm and the software can interpret the the audio signal to say, you know, it's a regular heartbeat, or it sounds like you have a murmur, or it sounds like you have an irregular heartbeat, like more like an arrhythmia. And that's where the person has to get involved in terms of a caretaker and not say like, well, you're only 20 years old. This can't be happening to you. Of course it could be happening to you. It happens in humans. You know, these diseases and pathological states don't normally differentiate between, you know, someone who's newborn or someone who's a hundred years old. There's just more likely that it'll happen in a certain age group because that's where it's presented before. That's where the bulk of the data came from. And that's how, and again, going back to medicine training, that epidemiology evidence base was often, you know, it, it's treated sometimes in a biblical manner. And the mistake is to interpret it that way. It, it's, it is something that educates you, but it's not an absolute. It's absolutely never, ever an absolute you should be prepared for every variant. <laughs> you should be prepared for every exception to the rule because you do have to keep your eyes, ears open and your brain open, your mind open to alternatives. And I agree with you. You have to listen to the person and you have to look at what this case is presenting. And I think telemedicine has a lot of tools that, again, can, can be deployable, super accurate, and actually help the healthcare provider be more observant and less biased right? So I'm hoping that's the direction that gets taken with the design and especially the data analysis. If it's driven by more traditional epidemiological approaches, you might be stuck with the same kind of biases. Like someone may rule something out just when they see your demographics, or they might include something because of your demographics. Well, that's a mistake. They haven't seen you yet. Don't prime the pump. Look for what's really there and respond to what's really there and go get more data if you have more unknowns that you need to address. And that might mean, you know, different different technology being used along the way. Yeah, and, you know, we've been very fortunate to work with a lot of startups who are trying to break ground and break open these spaces, uh, you know, particular to telemedicine. 
But the disheartening thing is the, you know, the governmental institutions haven't progressed enough to be on the forward edge of thinking, you know, it's always a fear response. We are, we want to restrict, you know, at home access to a lot of these technologies that could help people better monitor themselves and better, better characterize themselves over time as an end of one data point and be, you know, more in the vein of precision medicine, but the fear is that people won't know how to use the data. And so instead of reacting to that risk appropriately with a solution, like, well, how can we make that data intuitive to people so that they do the right thing or they understand the right um, piece of information that the data is trying to tell them? Instead, we tried to clamp down on allowing technology to progress with these innovative solutions. And for, from my perspective, I still think we have a long way to go to, to educate like the, the government regulation boards and to kind of help them as experts in the human centered design arena, help them understand how to support these tech companies to provide data in a meaningful way that's acted upon correctly. Yeah. But I, I think the, you know, the FDA, yes, can, can definitely create um, a barrier to rapid entry. Um, however, I think market pressure, I think insurance companies, are all going to lobby incredibly hard. And I think a lot of the 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 patient-centered, the ones you're talking about, like the patient-centered um, coalitions can, can do a lot, especially for at-risk populations. I mean, the idea of what's going on and, and the awareness now and the inequity of healthcare, whether it be inner city or rural America, um, you know, to indigenous populations, not just third world countries, these people just can't get to healthcare or they can't get to healthcare that's complete in terms of, well, they might be able to find a place to get their blood pressure checked and their, their blood glucose checked to see if they have type two diabetes, but, but they actually can't get the drug or whatever the tool is. You know, you start with lifestyle factors, but ultimately let's say it's an emergency and someone's blood pressure has to be brought down or blood sugar has to be brought down before their lifestyle factors could really impact them. But now they don't have a pharmacy or they don't have the funds to go get the drugs or the drugs aren't covered by the limited insurance they have. So systematically, the government, I think, is a position and has a responsibility to address the end-to-end process. And pieces that you're talking about, I'm hoping that the commercial market and also the market that deals with the actual risk of the human and, and ends up, unfortunately, you deal with dollars. And that's where the insurance companies come in. We've always had a hard case prioritizing preventive care. Because they're like, I don't absolutely know if I spend my dollar on this, it'll save me $20 later. But I know when you actually have disease X, I'm going to choose whichever, you know, whatever the the cost-benefit ratio really makes sense to the company who has to return profits to shareholders. That's the model that's gotten us really jammed up in many places. But I'm hoping that some of this, because the data is emerging, given being driven out of pandemic times to say, for those who engaged in telemedicine, did more prevention or earlier intervention, look at all the outcomes that were avoided and you can put dollar amounts on the outcomes that would have happened because you have prior history to know what those expenditures were. So those are like the actuaries who work for the insurance companies and economists can come up with numbers to start to defend why economically this is a smarter thing to do and then kind of drive policy to say, How do we open up the space? And, and, you know, you're always going to get into, and I think you called it a dance before, but, you know, where do you manage safety and efficacy and all those things to make sure that, you know, 
someone isn't getting inferior care because we went too quickly. So the, it's going to be a balance, but I think you're correct that it, it's in front of people. Um, there's a big, people want it. I, I'm hoping people stay vocal about that and vocal about being part of their own care. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of pieces that still need to be addressed. Yeah. yeah and I think that's, that's, oh, oh you can go, Cynthia. Oh, no, I, I was just going to say, I think it's it's such a huge part of this conversation. There's an uncomfortable tug of war when you talk about money and profits and the failure of businesses to see the opportunities for new and different profits. If it's not this anymore, you know, we do. I hate to say it this way, and it is unethical, but unfortunately, it's just kind of a an outcome of the system. We We end up prioritizing keeping disease in some respects, not because we want to keep people sick, but it's more profitable to treat the disease than it is to solve it. And that's something that a lot of people aren't willing to say or stick their neck out and say, but it, it's a truth. It's an outcome. It may not have been the goal, but it's where we end up because of how things get profitized to Jen's point. Yeah. And I think as we continue to go, I mean, I think I feel like telemedicine has been accepted thus far. And if we only continue to improve it and continue to gather that individual data, maybe we can change that and can change to actually start treating people and still benefiting from it versus, in a sense, keeping them sick or just treating them for how they are, um, because that's the only way that we're kind of sadly benefiting. So I think that's a good note to wrap on. Um, I do want to thank you ladies for your time today. Uh, this has been the fifth episode of the second season of the Human Odyssey podcast. Be sure to check out our social media platforms for more human-centered content. Yeah, thank you for the conversation. I appreciated it. Yeah, it's a good one. It's going to be yeah, ongoing good, for sure. Good discussion. Yeah, we can probably make a, another episode out of kind of the future of telemedicine and you know aerospace and those implications. The Human Odyssey is presented by Sophic Synergistics, the experts in human-centered design. Find out more at sophicsynergistics.com. Get smart. Get Sophic smart. Get Sophic smart.